Hi everyone, welcome to Training with Casey, where we explore animal training and living our best lives with animals. I'm Joseph Laughlin, producer of this podcast, and now here's your host, Casey Covert. Let's get started. Welcome everyone to Training with Casey. I'm your host, Casey Covert, and Thanks for the introduction you do for us, Joseph. Very nice to have you with us today. You're very welcome, Casey. And I'm glad to be here with you today. How's everything going with you? It's been going really well. We're getting ready to bring the horses home. And one of the things I'll regret about bringing the horses home, uh, they're in a wonderful place. And I, I love the people and I love the other horses. And that's the worst thing is, you know, saying goodbye to this great community. But another thing is that they have a paved lane. That's going to be hard to bring them home. Yeah, it's a lot of work, believe me. Believe me. So we've had to dig ditches and clean swales and uh, clear a field and take up all the roots and then we had a bunch of wisteria that we had to try to dig up and cover with black and poison and all this stuff and we excavated a round pen so that we can do our walking at our house because at the stable they have this very nice paved lane and So, you know, what I'd like to talk about tonight is blood sugar, blood sugar and animals and us and how it's a, it's really a big deal. And a lot of people have a lot of problems with their blood sugar and they don't realize what's going on. And then we also have problems with the animals like my horse is insulin resistant. But for years, I didn't really understand what this meant. I was about to just ask you if there's any similarities between humans and animals in this instance and how this relates and if there's anything similar that we humans have as like medications for animals or yeah it's different for them yeah it it can have a lot of similarities and you know joseph where whatever you're researching it's very difficult to get a definitive answer uh like i follow a low carb diet and i really like it because I don't feel hungry then, but in my own case, I actually, it took me years to figure out how to lose weight. And finally I did. And last year I lost like 50 pounds. And then in August I had a high blood sugar of like, I don't know, like 220. And I thought, Oh, you know, it's because I ate out or something like that. And I went back to my fasting and my low carb diet and all this stuff and working out with weights. And I had a blood sugar of 300, which is like really bad, really bad. And I was so confused because between the August and the January blood sugars, I lost another seven pounds. So I wasn't losing it really fast or anything like that. I was doing a lot of fasting. Imagine my surprise when I woke up in the morning and, you know, following the directions of the doctors, took a blood sugar, and let's say it was 120, and let's say I continued to fast for another four hours, take a blood sugar, it's 165? What? Why so many different changes? That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, and and confusing because you can't start burning fat until you don't have 
any carbs and you're not going to make ketones and burn your fats as long as you have um, blood sugar right there for the using. So I was really confused by that. Well, it turns out that it's not absolutely the normal, typical thing. Go figure, right? But it's also not so very rare. When your body is fasting or exercising strenuously or eating really low carbohydrate, it interprets that as a stress. And so in all three cases, it'll send signals to your liver to produce blood sugar. So would that be a bad stress then? Yeah. Because I know there's also different types of stress. Right. There's eustress and distress. And eustress, I believe, is things that you actually like, but you still have to adapt to them. Because I learned about how... Uh, how stress, how we can make stress become our friend. That's what okay, I learned so in tell us a adolescent more about development. That. Like, so what basically, they you basically, there's this part in your brain that just makes stress become your friend. So instead of having that stress be negative, it just uh makes you happier. Huh. I want I'll need to, to send you that video. You need to send me that video because believe me, it's a complicated subject. For example, remember we talk about the perception modification and the fact that animal after animal that has that preparation has lived an exceptionally long life. Oh yeah, I remember that. So my gray seals, my sea lions live uh, up to 50% longer than expected. My gray seals both broke longevity records. My horse will be 32 in a couple of weeks. And she still looks beautiful and she's going strong. And, you know, other animals too. So I think stress is really a challenge because if you talk to me, on, you know, if you spend time with me, you're going to find out that generally, especially in emergencies, I'm pretty unflappable. I don't look like a person that gets stressed, but I have all the physical symptoms of a person under chronic stress. I could just imagine you in the middle of an emergency be like, OK, come on, Joseph, let's do this. Let's go. Come on, yeah. let's go. Yeah, yeah, that's really that's really it. It's like, I've already thought about the scenarios. Like when I was responsible for all the bears, I went out and bought ladders that we could throw down uh, to the keepers if they were stuck inside the bear exhibit. And so that maybe they could get a chance to climb out. And also the thing to cut the ladders out if the bear started to climb out and just all kinds of things like that. And we would go through drills and I worked with a lot of really young people. So I definitely put them through drills and it was really important. For example, one day, uh, two, two young interns came in they were like 12 and 13 years old and they smelled chlorine gas when they entered the filter building. So they knew to immediately grab the gas mask out of the, you know, we had a special locker for that. They went outside, fitted their mask, went back in. I guess on the way um, they got their mask, on the way out the door, they hit the alarm. Then they fitted their mask. Then they went in and they need to do a building sweep because somebody mixed something that created chlorine gas. It doesn't just appear. So what can happen in situations like that is somebody can make a mistake and mix chlorine in a vat that used to have algicide in it, for example. And then the two will react and that'll form all this chlorine gas, which is very, very toxic. So 
There were three stories to the filter room and they go down to the very bottom and they find two engineers that are in their late 30s and, you know, 40s, maybe even 50s. And they tell them they need to leave the building. Now, what they didn't have for them, I don't know if they even existed because there may have only been two masks in there. But anyway, the other thing they might have done is taken a mask down with them. But anyway, what they did instead is they went down wearing the mask and they said, you need to leave this building and you know, we'll help you go up and all this kind of thing. And these guys are, oh, yeah, no, we're fine. Don't you worry about a thing. La, la, la. We just mix some this and that. And the people that um, worked with me were like, you need to leave the building. And the guys wouldn't. And they just continued doing what they were doing. And what they should be doing is hosing this stuff away. For most of these things that happen in water quality control, the answer is to just dilute it with a hose of water. And they weren't doing that. They finished their job. They didn't black out or anything, thank God, because these two young girls would have never been able to pull them up the stairs on their own. But the next day, they were hospitalized with chlorine exposure. Oh, God. yeah. So did they have an allergic reaction to it? Because I know whenever I'm in a chlorinated pool, like it's if it's uh chlorinated, like I will have a allergic reaction and I start sneezing uncontrollably and my eyes are red. Okay, so I believe technically you're not having an allergic reaction you're having a toxic reaction okay so theoretically you can only be truly allergic to proteins but maybe they've changed that okay i used to work in immunopathology so that's where i got this information from well anyway when you are exposed to chlorine and water it will injure your skin cells. So it can cause you all kinds of problems. It can cause you cancers. It can cause you fungal lesions. It goes on and on. So yeah, it's not that you're making it up in your mind. It's just that it's not technically an allergic reaction. It is your body trying to get rid of the chlorine. Now, It's possible that you are having an allergic reaction, but not to the chlorine gas, to something called combined chlorines. Because you use chlorine to um, burn up all the nitrogenous nitrogenous waste that's in the water. Because, you know, if uh, you're running a pool for people or animals, there's going to be urine, Hopefully with the people, not feces, but we all know everybody pees in the pool, whether they admit it or not. And so they put this chlorine in to um, transform this urine into something else that will allow it to be burned off and it it reenters the atmosphere as nitrogen gas. But the problem is that it doesn't all burn away. You always have some of this combined chlorine. And the combined chlorine is what causes the water to turn kind of greenish. And it smells like chlorine. Like the algae. Yep. Yeah. It's, I mean, you could always have an algae bloom. Right. But if you have high levels of combined chlorines or chloramines, they also call them, then your water will be greenish and it'll smell like, you know, it has a certain smell and it's toxic. If you just have water with straight, certain amount of chlorine in it, it's less toxic than water with chloramines in it. Okay. So that's what you're reacting to. And um, yeah, it's not good for you. And it's a problem in managed care because the water is recirculated, 
over and over again. And of course, they're constantly adding some water also. But right. what happens is certain organisms are resistant to chlorine. Now, I know that... Uh... I know that in marine mammal facilities, they don't use chlorine, or they say they don't. Mm -hmm. or Are they now I've using... Heard, I've heard that they don't use chlorine. That's good. If they've stopped using chlorine... Now, see, I was there a long time ago. They like, use chlorine. Yeah, they use chlorine then. Okay. And um, at a much lower level than you would have in a swimming pool. But still, there are five out of eight or nine marine pathogens. There's like eight or nine main marine pathogens. And out of those, four or five of them are chlorine resistant. So what that means is if you're chlorinating the water, you wipe out the bacteria that is less resistant. So you're left with the stuff that's more resistant and it's not affected by the chlorine. Right. And that can even be fungi. So you can have saprocytic um, uh, lesions on the skin of the animals, things like that. So it's good that we have evolved since then. And I believe that what they're probably using is UV light. Oh, okay. So it'd be interesting. Gosh, maybe we can find somebody that's up on this and talk to them about it. Because I know we should. Yeah. But find um, out. the problem with UV light is you, you've got a light source and then you have a tube that curls around the light source. And so the water has to be, the tube has to be small enough that the UV light kills everything in the water as it's passing by. Okay, now we need to find out. So if there's anyone out there, please contact us. We actually yeah, want yeah, to know. Really. <laughs> yeah, and I'll, I'll start asking amongst my friends and so on, because there's people that have to be up on it. You know, it kind of depends on what kind of place you work at, too. Because right. in the larger oceanariums, you have water quality control staff. Right. And the trainers don't necessarily deal with it. But yeah, no. I worked in places where I was directly involved, even though they were large places with, you know, like we had engineers that took care of the water and so forth. But nonetheless, we needed to know also, you need to be able to understand what's going on. That makes okay. sense. Yeah. So we've digressed because we started out talking about blood sugar and animals. Yeah, sorry we ran on a little tangent there. Yeah, uh, won't happen again. Capybara hole. I know, right? We went down a capybara hole. Not good. Yeah. So a capybara water feature. So um, getting back to the horse, this my horse has always been insulin resistant. And they would say, oh, she's an easy keeper. Oh, she's too, uh, she's gained a little too much weight. And I'm like, well, all she's eating is grass. Well, she got just a little bit of grain and it was only about a pound a day. But it was enough. She didn't need to have that grain. So as I learned more about it and also I changed where my horse was. So I had more control over her food and I stopped all grain products and uh, she got better, but then as she got older, then things slipped again and she got diagnosed with having literally insulin resistance. And so I mentioned they put her on the medication, Procend, and she did not tolerate it. And so as I was experiencing this myself, what I found, because remember, I was doing the intermittent fist fasting, the low carb diet, working out on weights, losing weight, and having incredibly high blood sugars. So the only thing that worked for me, like, yeah, they put me on medications 
And they told me, oh, if your blood sugar is this high, take more of this, all this. But it didn't actually change the blood sugar. Like I still had exactly the same blood sugars until I started doing this one thing. And that is every time I ate anything, I went out and got on the treadmill for at least three minutes. So like for me personally, three to six minutes on the treadmill would take about 10 points off my blood sugar. So as I read, it says you need to optimal for the day is about 45 minutes of slow exercise. Because if you do vigorous exercise like weightlifting or uh, high intensity interval training, it will cause you to spike your blood sugar really badly. Now, how about the 30 minutes a day of exercise and how would that tie in? Well, you could do it. Like some people, even if they have um, high blood sugar issues, they could still do this other kind of exercise, a higher intensity, because they're not so insulin resistant. It appears that I actually created my own diabetes case by doing the fasting and the uh, low carb and the high intensity exercise. Like it, it was just too much for my system. So I have to go kind of like under the radar screen and just walk. But here's the thing, more and more of the people that I'm studying do exactly that. And you can't go do the other stuff until you get your blood sugar back in control. Now, I think that's really interesting. It's really relevant to all of us because do you know how what percentage of the U.S. they estimate has this problem? Uh, no, how much? About 90%. Yikes. And they now, how do you find out about this? Well, that is a really good question because uh, the people looked at me, you know, because I'm round, right? And I was so physically fit, Joseph, when I was, you know, up until my mid 40s. And when I started working for myself and I had to be in a desk more and different kinds of stresses, I started gaining weight. And every time I went to the doctor, they would tell you, you need to lose weight, but they didn't say anything. They didn't say anything on how to lose weight. Well, and also like for anybody that gains weight in the middle, that is a classic symptom of cortisol problems. That's a stress issue. And so I went to an endocrinologist in 2016. Wow. It got bread over there. <laughs> huh? It got bright over there in your, uh, yeah, in your yeah. little cubicle. Somebody raiding the refrigerator at night. Who's raiding um, the refrigerator over in your cubicle? Dave, and he needs to not do it either. Hi, Dave. <laughs> He's seeing an incommunicado. But anyway, um, so all these, these endocrinologists said, oh, you probably have Cushing's disease. You probably have diabetes. You probably, I didn't have any of them. Right. But they didn't say when, when I didn't have any quote unquote diseases, they didn't say, okay, you don't have any diseases, but you appear to have cortisol issues. And so you need to do this, this, and this. They just sent me home. And it was like, well, come back when you have a symptom and I, I hate to be cynical because I know a, a lot of the problem is that our medical system, the doctors are not allowed to spend time with custom clients. They shouldn't just send you home. They need to actually diagnose you with something and help you with it. Yeah. Well, like, why did you think I would be sick? And now I'm not sick and you're not saying congratulations. You're just sending me home. You should have said, you need to study how to manage your stress and your cortisol issues. Well, because I sent you that video on how 
we can make stress our friends. So yeah, hopefully good for that. you. Hopefully but that for, for all your friends that are thicker in the middle, you know, they need to think about cortisol. Like uh, almost everybody is getting non-alcoholic fatty liver disease now. Boy, are we digressing. But anyway, if you... We are going on, we're going down a deeper capybara hole than we Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so alcohol, high fructose corn syrup, all fructose is um, processed in your liver. And it deposits fat in your liver, uh, in the, around the blood vessels, all around your liver. That's what makes you round. And the cortisol uh, will stimulate you to produce more blood sugar from that fat that's on your liver. But it also, uh, so so then, then you have this high blood sugar level, which is really bad for you. And you don't need to run away from a tiger. You were adapted, you're evolved for a lifestyle where you're out with a hunting party and all of a sudden you see a saber tooth tiger and you got to run like heck. And so your, your cortisol goes quick, get her some blood sugar so she can outrun the tiger. But with the kinds of stresses we have now, it's not going to help us. So we just get all this blood sugar sloshing around and we don't, we don't even know what's happening. So let's relate it back to the animals. And the first thing is there's no such thing as essential carbohydrates. Carbohydrates allow you to produce work. Like if you don't have the fat reserves to burn, you know, to make uh, ketones and to run your brain on ketones, that's actually your brain's preferred food, then you need to have either sugar in your bloodstream or uh, you can store a certain amount of stuff in your muscles and then when you use it up, either your liver has to make more sugar or you have to take a nap for a while. Uh, you know how cats take cat naps? They're obligate. Yeah. They're, they're obligate carnivores and they cannot convert to sugar like we can. It takes them 45 minutes to convert like um, protein. Right. So when they, run, it. when they run out of steam, they literally go to sleep while their body produces more energy for them. Kind of weird. Anyway, <clears throat> so there's differences between the animals. But long and short for all of us, if we fast more, if we eat fewer meals, we're going to all do better. Now, when you are working with exotic animals, how often do they feed the animals during the day? A couple times a day. Really? Two times a day? At least, or well, uh, they have the AM diets and then they have the PM diets. Now that's really interesting to me because when I was, Working, the animals only got one meal a day. And then if they're doing training sessions, then they have. The yeah, I was going to say training. training sessions, they would divide the food yeah. between the different sessions. But uh, sort of I'll, like what they do at SeaWorld, where they break up the food and they and they still get the whole. Yeah, they get a certain amount diet. per day, yeah. but divided up into various. Buckets. Parts for the day. Now, um, when I was seeing uh, young sea lions, and they're really young, and um, they first started to eat regular food, and when it came time for the feeding session, 
they would look hypoglycemic. They would be uh, shivering a little bit. And then they would eat. And after about 15 minutes, they would be um, their normal selves again. But I, I couldn't quite distinguish it. We didn't take blood sugar tests on them. And they didn't seem terrible. As a matter of fact, it was almost like it might have been a sympathetic response. You know how a baby bird will go, ee, ee, ee. It's yeah. almost like the little sea lions were like, oh, look, I'm pathetic. Or, 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 or. Yeah, yeah. Because they didn't have any other symptoms. And they didn't have the symptoms before we started the feeding session. Anyway, um, but that's all fat and protein. There's not very much carbohydrate unless the fish were eating yeah, they had the if the fish had their bellies full of seaweed or something, then you'd probably have more carbohydrate. So marine mammals are a little bit different, but all the bears, seal sea lions, beavers, bush dogs, wolves, cheetahs, white-tailed deers, everything only got fed once a day. And a lot of the animals got fasted once a week. That's very all, interesting. Yeah, all the cats got fasted once a week. And they would just get some um, maybe bones, you know, like soup bones to chew on. Right. And you're saying that that is not your experience these days. That's not what I've experienced. Interesting. From my view. But I'm sure like in other places they... I don't know, actually. This might be another good question for someone else. Yeah, so, well, I mean, we need to start looking into these things and update ourselves. Yeah. Okay, we're going to look up. We're going to look into these things. Yeah. So, finally, getting back to blood sugar and horses, like I mentioned before, I cut out all the grains for my horse, and you can even soak the hay because the hay has sugars in it. So if you soak the hay in water, that will wash out a lot of the sugars and you'll retain the rest of the nutrition. And we up the protein, especially as both people and horses get older, we need considerably more protein rather than less. We're not building muscle like we did when we were your age, but we're so basically. So basically, basically, you're saying that people shouldn't become vegan. Well, I'm not sure if I'm saying that because you or can get a lot of protein we, from beans and you know, yeah, all plants point. have protein in them. Most of them do, at least. Really? Yeah. Okay, so. We've got this horse now that we're increasing. She's getting soybean meal for her protein. And we have cut, we just finally cut all the beet pulp because that has lectins in it, which can cause inflammation. And it was thought that, (laughs) excuse me, I don't know why I'm coughing. It was thought that the beet pulp would help the horses against stomach upset and ulcers. But my horse had some symptoms of lower system ulcers that were not, the symptoms were not resolving. That's interesting. Yeah, we decided to just go ahead and cut the beet pulp and we did it slowly. And then the, the big deal is me getting over there every day that I can and walking with her after her dinner. And it's really interesting because for both of us at first, it only takes about five minutes to walk this lane. And we would walk one, you know, one path of it, one five minute path, and she would be dragging behind me. And I'm like, you've got four legs. I've only got two. Let's go, go, go. But <laughs> I have to admit, I was dragging too. And 
it was probably over a week before we were brave enough to do the second, you know, we do one round trip and then it was like, okay, we did it. And then it was about a week or so longer. And we started doing two round trips and thought we should get medals for it. Next time you do it, I should come over there and I should be like, okay, come on, Casey, come on. Yeah, you, you should just join us. I bet you anything, you can't keep up with us. So now. I know I couldn't keep up with you guys. I'd be like, okay, I'm done. Yeah, yeah. It's like, okay, I wanna, I'm going to watch you and document it from here. But now we just. <laughs> I'll put take, this on the podcast. We we just take off. It's like uh, kind of pulled everything together like. When you're walking, it's not a dramatic thing, but you will start to see it takes about six minutes to warm up, whatever kind of exercise you're doing. And after about six minutes, you could go a lot longer. Well, six minutes, remember, that was one of our little paths down the lane. And we were like, oh, can we go home now? If you stick it out within 10 days, which is when we started to probably do the two path, two round trips. And once you get to about 11 or 12 minutes, you could just keep going practically all day long. So it's worth it because it's worth it to just stick it out. I mean, good grief. I remember I used to walk five miles on my lunch hour. I just take off out the door at the zoo and walk all the way from the National Zoo down to the road that went across to the Arlington Cemetery and then hightail it back as fast as I can. Now, if you can believe it, what I was eating was usually a little Ziploc baggie with about six pepper, bell pepper rings. I still hate bell peppers. You hate bell peppers? Yeah. Who are you? <laughs> I'm I'm misinformed. I wasn't reared correctly. Okay. But I'm gonna I'm gonna go find a bell pepper for you and I'm gonna have I'm gonna just start or no, I'm I'm gonna go find a bell pepper. I'm gonna start eating it in front of you. Yeah, I actually do like them, but they're not my favorite pepper. I, I usually eat other peppers. But yeah, watch, you'll see me just eating it. Here's the other weird thing. When I was at National Zoo, I was often hypoglycemic. And um, that's maybe we'll talk about that on another day. But for those people that are working their tails off, if you're not converting your, uh, if you either don't have fat you don't have glycogen reserves like you're working all the time, which when I was at National Zoo, I worked all the time. So here, here's another story about metabolisms and people that do our kind of work. <clears throat> I was at National Zoo. When I first arrived there, I um, rented a room from my boss's family and I ate with them. And in the morning, I just didn't have enough time to eat. So I didn't eat breakfast. And I was so busy with what I did. I didn't eat lunch either. So I went home. I would eat a single dinner and, you know, no extra servings of anything or anything like that. And that almost sounds like me. What? That almost sounds like what I do. Okay. So no snacking. I've seen you snack. I rarely snack. Okay. Well, I didn't snack at all either. And I got really, really trim and tiny until right before we opened the Beaver Valley exhibit. And then I was working six or seven days a week, often 12 hours a day. And if you can believe it, I gained 15 pounds in one month. Yikes. But here's the crazy thing. Now that, I, now that I'm thinking about it in relationship to a career of, you know, managing blood sugar and everything, I didn't change anything I ate. I'm working harder, 
I'm eating, if anything, less. So what changed? Stress. I would say the stress changed. Yeah, that's what changed. But I still don't get it. Like, how could you gain weight when you weren't gaining weight before? It's not like I got more fat on my liver so I would convert more blood. Because that cortisol is saying, okay, we need to start storing reserves so that way. Yeah, we we need help because I know I'm not the only person that had hypoglycemia. And it was um, bad enough that, you know, it'll cause you to lose track of what you're doing. It caused me to leave my keys in the door a couple of times. Oh, don't do that. Yeah, I would become tongue-tied. Like, I'm very used to public speaking, and all of a sudden, I couldn't say anything. It would cause little twitches and pains and all this other kind of weird stuff. So I remember I had to go in for a diving physical and I rode my bicycle. It was in the middle of like July and it was 95 degrees out. And I rode my bicycle 13 miles to get to this doctor who was doing our diving physicals. And I felt terrible. So I got there and I was actually in tears because I could barely walk and Um, The doctor just goes, well, I'll tell you something. If you got here on your bicycle, you're in really good shape because most people would die doing that. Like, in other words, (laughs) I can just imagine I was in really good shape, but I wasn't feeling good. So sometime later, I used to always run. I'd run like three to five miles. uh, Run probably three to five times a week. And I had gone running at the uh, Rock Creek Park and felt terrible. And so I stopped by a doctor's on the way in and he measured my blood sugar and it was only 45. And your blood sugar is normally, like a great blood sugar would be 80 to 90, but it's good up until about 110. But 45... The doctor goes, I can't believe you're standing upright. And I said, well, this is a good day. Well, just recently, I've learned that if your body is used to going into ketosis, you can have a blood sugar that low and you'll be absolutely fine as long as you've got fat to burn. If you don't have fat to burn, you could end up in ICU with a blood sugar that low. But The thing about it is I've been in the emergency room a couple of times with these weird symptoms that I'm telling you about. You also can get tunnel vision and other weird things. And I'm totally confused, right? Because I'm young, I'm fit, I'm very athletic, and I feel terrible. So I go into the emergency room and the doctors who probably had about 15 minutes of experience, like they were right out of med school, and they explained to me that I probably, it was probably psychological and it was like a desperate cry for help, like I needed attention. And I just looked at him, I go, I'm a dang dolphin trainer. What makes you think I have to do this to get attention? Really? So they thought you were trying to get attention. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, how lame is that? So this doctor that I just stopped and saw, he's the only freaking person that took a blood sugar. And then he finds out the blood sugar is really, really low. And he got me started on, you know, more protein, less carbohydrates. Oh, boy. And it really helped me. It took me actually about two years to get rid of all my symptoms. And as we're talking about, I'm realizing, gee, that's the other side of the coin. Why did I have that problem? It's all related. It's all in your ability to, you want to keep the ability to switch between metabolizing uh, sugars and metabolizing fat. And so fasting will help you be able to metabolize fat. But Probably everybody needs to monitor their own blood sugars. 
Right. I believe Before you have any symptoms, what were you saying? I said, I'd believe that, that everyone needs to have that ability to monitor their blood sugar. Well, you know, what's kind of crazy is that why in the world wouldn't you just be able to monitor your own blood sugar? Like I've got all the equipment. I've even got extra equipment I could send to you for free. Oh, there you go. But you just need to train me how to do it. They will not let you get the little strips for testing them without a prescription. Why not? Why not? Yeah. Why can't you just go down and buy the stupid strips and test your own blood sugar and become an expert in how your metabolism is running? That'd be nice. Yeah. There's a lot of people that are doing something like that. Yeah. They're like, uh, personal trainers and things like that. And they've learned all these things that I'm learning at my late age that I'm telling you, because as a professional animal person, you're going to be in really hot, really cold weather. You're going to be working hours that you can't control. You're going to, I can't even control the hours that I work now. Exactly. And you know, how much effort are you going to have to put in? When I would scrub the sea lion pool, I'd be scrubbing the sea lion pool nonstop for like six to 10 hours. Like once I started that job and, and the longer you left it, yeah, the longer it was dry, the worse it would be. So man, you would just hit that stuff and just get it all down as fast as possible. But the pool was 125 feet long and it was 500,000 gallons. And that sounds like an enormous uh, sea lion pool. Yeah, it was. It was, uh, I, I think it was an average of 16 feet deep and up to 30 feet wide in certain places. So it was a large pool. Anyway. If you your blood sugar. And if you are not aware of these things, you can get into bad situations without even realizing how that happened. And of course, now talking with you about this, I'm curious, like, could I have helped my baby sea lions? You know, I'm sure you could have. Yeah. Do they need a little more support? Is there a way to do that? You know, when baby seals are born up in the Arctic and everything, like I think it's a bearded seal that the milk is incredibly high in fat. What's and, a bearded seal? Because I've only heard of ring seals, uh, fur seals. Okay, get used to it. It's, it's, leopard there's seals. More than, there's more things in the world than you've heard of yet. A bearded seal is an Arctic seal, and it has a big, long whiskers. And I'm thinking the milk is something like 20% fat. Or See, I, I should just stop here because I can't absolutely remember, but uh, I believe they gained weight at such an incredible weight at rate that within a few days, they were like 200 pounds. And their nursing time, even with a little gray seal, the nursing time is about a month. That's crazy. Yeah. They okay, really... I'm looking at a bearded seal. Okay. Cool, right? The cool looking critters? Yeah. Look at the milk. Tell us what the milk is. What percentage fat and uh, how long do the babies nurse and how fast do they gain weight? Uh, 60%. Wow. I remember. Oh, wait, hold on. I think. No, 30%. I'm sorry. Wait, I'm looking at this. Hold on. Yeah, go ahead. Now I'm going down a rabbit hole. I'm so sorry. Don't quote me, but I think it's 30%. Okay. And how long do the babies nurse before they are mother's leave? I think it's only four days. And I think they go up to 200 pounds in that time. 
Okay, if we've got any bearded seal experts in the audience, correct us if I got it wrong. I know, please correct us. Put us in put it in the comments and we'll make it better. It but, says a few days. Yeah, a few days. And the milk is so thick that the mother has to express it into the baby's mouth. Like the baby could not uh, have enough suckling power to pull it out of the um, teat. And if the baby doesn't drink all the milk, you know, like if the mother expressed the milk and then lets up the pressure on it and the baby didn't get it all, it'll suck the milk back into the nipple. We're talking intense stuff. So that's how the animals in the Arctic can deal with it. Sea lions, California sea lions, you know, they're in a relatively warm area. Yeah, they're right off the coast of California. Yes, they are. I should know that. Yes. Okay. So tonight we talked a lot about various issues related to animal husbandry, starting with my investigation of blood sugars and looking at how we can help our animals. And like I said, the one thing that helps me that seems like it's the lowest risk and the most applicable across the board is gentle exercise. And I have seen that definitely improve my horse's situation. And so we're going to make sure that we can optimize that, even though we won't have a lane here. We're going to switch to a round pen and just go out there. We'll play some good music and we will just walk around in circles Switch direction every few minutes so we work out both sides equally. I'll join you. Yeah, it, we have fun, actually. And you know what? Once you really get used to doing it, it is so pleasant. You don't even want to stop. How, what's the longest that you have walked? In a single session. Uh, I Miles, can't even think of it. <laughs> Okay, so the longest I've definitely walked in one uh, time was 15 miles for um, multiple sclerosis fundraiser. And at the time, I was very fit and so forth. And it only took a little over three hours. And it was really a lot of fun. As a matter of fact, I took my monkey, Tish, and my sister was doing it also. And she took our, her little daughter in a stroller, Alana. So we had our running shoes and we had our numbers on and all that. But we were both fit. and We did all this running and walking anyway. And we just had a beautiful walk uh, down the canal in the D.C. area. And, you know, they gave us free water and all this other kind of neat stuff. People cheered for us. All this, it was just a really pleasant time. But getting up there, getting up to the point where it's just fun to walk for 15 miles, that takes a little bit of work. Okay, so the most I have walked is probably like, okay, 9.9 miles. Oh, that's pretty good. What was that for? I can't even remember. Or there's one that says 10.34 miles. Okay, so how much do you remember. walk as a matter of course now? Uh, that's how a much a question. day, for example? I'm looking. Let's see. Uh, the most I've walked today was 3.05 miles. That's not terrible. That's, That's not pretty terrible. Good. Was that about 7,000 steps? Uh, about. Oh, no, wait. No, this was on the 18th that I walked at. That's okay. That's, That's like... pretty good. And I averaged like, or my total, or my 
target steps is like 6,000. I went over that and I got 6,318. Good for you. Up the ante. Go for it. There's something about 10,000 steps, which is about five miles a day, which it's a cutoff for a whole different echelon of benefits. Don't ask me what. That'll be for another time. Okay. Okay. So keep track of it. And next time we do a, a podcast together, we can compare notes. I know. We should compare. Yeah, because it's a lot more fun. And like I said, life has been better since I started doing this. That's pretty good. They said, I, I read that for every hour you work, you should get up and exercise for two minutes. And I thought, man, I'll never get anything done. But actually, when you think about it, eight hours, that would only be 16 minutes of exercise. And we need 45, so we need to do more than that. Well, 60. 60 minutes a day. Well, once you get up to 45, 45 for whatever reason is the optimal. Okay. And I don't know why. I don't remember the details of it. I tend to I tend to say, okay, that's the best. Okay, I'll do that. And then I forget about everything about it. Hey, Joseph, it's been so much fun to talk today. It has been. I have a feeling. We need to do this again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'll bet you that just from what we've talked about today, it's certainly going to increase my awareness of tackling these things. And I'll look forward to comparing notes with you. And it also makes me feel good that you're already thinking about this and you're not going to end up like I did where I was really having problems and people weren't taking me seriously. And, um, you know, I was having a really hard time getting effective information to start managing my, in my case, my blood sugar. And it's like, well, maybe if I'd learned more about it back then, it, I wouldn't have gotten to this situation. Now, make sure you check out that video I sent you about how you can make stress your friend. Yeah, you better believe I'm going to see it. Hey, everybody, thank you so much for joining us. We really, really appreciate you. And we wish we could just talk with you. Maybe one of these days we could just have an interactive webinar. That'd be fun. Wouldn't that be fun or, to meet people? Or, you know, it'd be even funner is if we could broadcast this onto a radio station. Well, we could do live streaming. There you go. That would be at least a, a first step. Hey, Joseph, thank you so much. You guys take care and we'll see you next time. See you next time. Everybody. Hey, fans, are you enjoying training with Casey? Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Casey Cover on YouTube. That is youtube.com forward slash C slash Casey Cover. Also, give the podcast a like, share, and comment. Thanks for joining us. Come back for more news and views on animal training and living with animals. Stay at the top of the pack with Casey. This is Joseph Laughlin, producer of Training with Casey. See you next time.